as many of you know, if you don't know, I grew up in Oklahoma, central Oklahoma, in the OKC area, and it is considered Tornado Alley. So I saw many tornadoes in my years growing up in Oklahoma, but there's one tornado that stood out amongst all others, and it was a tornado that happened on May 3rd of 1999, all right? So Oklahoma's super flat, right? So you can see miles and miles ahead. We lived in Mustang, Oklahoma. That's a name. That's true. Um, And we lived in that place, and we would get up on the roof of the house to see tornadoes because it was so flat, so you could see where they were coming. Um, And then you would go and rush down into the shelter so you wouldn't get blown away. Um, But on this particular night, there was a massive tornado on May 3rd that just had catastrophic damage. So there's a number of firsts that this tornado brought to our community. Um, It changed the measuring scale for tornadoes. So before this tornado hit on May 3rd of 1999, you had F4 tornadoes, which were the highest that you could go. After this May 3rd tornado, they made F5 tornadoes because of how large and massive and catastrophic the damage was by this tornado. It was the very first time the National Weather Service used the term a tornado emergency. You don't hear that much here, but you hear that in Oklahoma a little bit more prevalently now. Um, it was over a mile in width, so I have a picture right here. Um, the funnel of that tornado was over a mile wide, a mile wide, 38-mile path that it left of destruction um, over the course of that evening. You can see some of the destruction right here. Winds were uh, calculated at 300 miles per hour, the strongest ever winds recorded on um, the planet Earth to my knowledge, um, and they, it caused one and a half billion dollars in damage. This was back in 1999, so I have no idea what the escalation would be in terms of that right now, but I got to do some of the disaster relief right after, the, after this. I was in like middle school at this point in time. Uh, shows you how old I am. And we uh, would go out and we would try to help clear up some of this debris, the debris that was there, and it just felt like you were walking into a war zone. You walked in, and there was just debris everywhere. I saw cars that were wrapped around tree trunks, um, saw trees, whole trees that were through roofs um, in different parts of houses. I mean, it was just, it was a nightmare. It was something that will never leave your mind, right? Well, over the next four weeks, we're going to be working through a series in the book of Titus. It's a short letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to a church planter named Titus, hence the name. And this church planter was in the, the city of Crete, all right? And so the primary theme of this entire letter is the church. And so um, Paul gives us this imagery of the church through a little phrase that he calls the household of faith, the household of God. And so what we want to do over the next four weeks is we want to kind of steal some of this imagery and think about the church for us here in the present day in St. Louis as a budding new church plant in a city that so desperately needs Jesus. And so if we're playing off of this imagery, here's kind of the four ways that we're wanting to work off of this for the next four weeks. We want to look at the household message, which is the gospel. It's what we're going to look at tonight. We're going to look at the household leadership, the leadership that God has ordained for the church, pastors, elders, and deacons. We want to look at that in the life of the church. So that'll be next week. The third week, we'll look at life within the household, how we relate to one another as the family of faith that God has pieced together in this world. And then the last one, we'll look at the household witness and how we engage our community as the church. And I believe this is a very timely letter for all of us, both our city, 
and our church because of what we've experienced in our society over the last five to ten years. So if you take a step back and you kind of look at the church and the landscape of the church, it almost feels like one of these storms where May 3rd tornado came and hit has kind of hit, our, hit the church across the United States, all right? And here's what I mean by that. There's just, it seems like there's been a lot of wreckage that has happened within the life of the church that honestly, you kind of look at the state of it and you're like, man, what's kind of left? So uh, if you look at one of the most important or one of the most popular podcasts that has come out, it's about this destructive leadership that took place in one of the largest churches in the United States, one of the fastest growing churches in the United States, and how this pastor literally destructed a whole entire church, and it was left in almost overnight in shambles without anything left resembling a church in North Seattle. You have other instances of sinful cover-ups that have taken place in some of the largest networks of churches in our country that have literally been exposed within just the last couple of years. You have so many divisive issues that have sort of popped up in the life of the church, whether it be politics in the ways that people have gone to the far right or the far left and it's just divided the church and kind of ripped it apart. You have different things theologically that churches have had disagreements on and so you see fractions of churches that have literally left because of these divisive issues that have popped up and arisen in the life of the church. That's not even to get into some of the social issues that have taken place in our society that have also sort of just ripped apart the church and have this just alley of wreckage that has been left behind it. And so what I want us to think about is like our city is no exception to this. We have many different examples that actually span far earlier than just the last five to 10 years that have happened and taken place in the life of our city. In the last two years, I can't tell you how many different times that I've heard from different people, different stories about destructive leadership, divisive issues that have just ravaged the church here in St. Louis. Some of those stories I've heard from you, from people that have come from different uh, existing churches where there was failed leadership from church plants that failed and there was just hurtful relationships that came out of that. Like a lot of us are kind of coming in here and in some ways you're giving church just a second try by even being a part of Storyline, which I'm super grateful for. And so the question I want us to really wrestle with is like, how do we not be one of these other stories? Like us as a new budding church that wants to be a, a light of the gospel to our community, what does it look like for us to not be one of these stories? Like I, I don't want that to be the end result of Storyline Church as we get five to ten years down the road. And so how do, we, how do we do that? What does it look like for us to really fight against being one of these stories? How do we safeguard ourselves? Well, I'm not going to tell you anything that seems surprising. Hopefully it doesn't sound surprising. Hopefully it's not shocking to you. But it's something that it seems every single time you look at just the catastrophe that's happened in these churches, it's always they kind of move away from this priority, and it's the priority of making Jesus the first and foremost thing that we look at in the life of our church. That we look constantly to the life of Jesus, the work of Jesus, the grace of Jesus, and how it plays into fruition in the life of the church. And we don't just do this individually off in our own silos, in our own homes, in our own prayer closets, with our Bible, and then we don't do anything together. No, you look and you prioritize Jesus as a church together. 
There's a way that you have a collection of people that have looked at Jesus and said, that's my savior, you're my people, and we're gonna walk together prioritizing Jesus as we live life with one another. Ray Orland kind of puts the church like this. He says, what is a church? A church, not the church, capital C, but a church, like a local embodied church, is a body of believers in Jesus. Look, together drawing their life from him in regular, practical, organized ways that accelerate their progress for him. And so over the course of the next four weeks, I just want us to get kind of a picture of God's vision for the church, not our vision for the church, God's vision for the church, so that we can be a people that are working against being one of those stories, but actually being a light as God has called us to be in a society that so desperately needs him. So my prayer is that, one, um, we're refreshed as we work through this. So if you're coming from some of these hurtful backgrounds, some of these church experiences where you're bringing in church hurt, I pray that you're refreshed in God's vision for the church. But then secondly, I pray that there's a unity that God provides to us as a new budding church here that we prioritize Jesus together. That there's a unified vision for what it looks like to be God's church in God's world in God's way. And so to kick us off, we're going to consider the household message, which I said is the gospel, all right? So here's the gospel. The gospel is God's message that the kingdom of God has come through Jesus, the only son who lived perfectly, who died completely, and rose victoriously over Satan's sin and death, all in our place to absorb the wrath that we deserved for our sin. That's the gospel of Jesus, that he's the one that stood in our place, not because we deserved it, not because we were so beautiful, not because God looked at us and was like, man, they have really impressed me. I'm gonna send Jesus to do something for them that, man, they've really earned it, they've really achieved it. No, it's not for any of that. It's because God has so lavishly loved us that he sent Jesus to the world so that we could have eternal life in him. And so Paul tells us this is his life, life's labor in Titus 1.1. He says, Paul, a servant of God, literally, I've, he's placed himself as in society to the point of a servant to go and do what God has told him to do. An apostle, a person that has seen Jesus face to face and has had a call in his life to take the good news of Jesus to others. And he says this, for the faith of God's elect, for those that God has called to himself and their knowledge of the truth, which is the gospel that leads to godliness, meaning that the truth of the gospel actually changes your life. It doesn't leave you where you're at and that you can continue to do whatever you wanna do, but the gospel comes into your life. It honestly kind of jacks you up, but then it, it like begins to put you back again, this broken person. It begins to piece you back together and make you whole because of who Jesus is. He gives you his life in exchange for your broken life. And so we want to be a people that are focusing on these things in the hope of eternal life, as Paul has said. And so Paul gives us three reasons that the gospel, why the gospel is the hope of eternal life and why it's the household message. And this is where we're headed for tonight. All right, so there's three things. God's promise God's character and God's pattern. God's promise, God's character, and God's pattern. So what we're going to do tonight is I just want to wrestle through these three different points. God's promise, God's character, God's pattern. We're going to see it play out in Titus 1, 1 through 4. And as we do this, I want us to look at these three reasons why the household message is the gospel. And our response is going to be that we can never move beyond it. 
If we're going to be a church that prioritizes Jesus, we never move beyond the gospel, but we actually continue to dive headfirst deeper and deeper into the good news of Jesus. And in doing so, like I said, I pray that the Holy Spirit just sort of breathes new life into us as we wrestle through this series. All right. So let's dive in. All right. That was long. I had to do two introductions, both for the series and for the sermon. We did it. All right, here we go. So the first one, God's promise. We see this in verse two. Here's what it says. In the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. Okay, so the first reason the gospel is the household message of Christ's church is because of God's promise. All right, think about this for a moment. Think about this, that God promised eternal life before time began. All right, so we're a sensory people, really hard for us to try to think about anything before the creation of this world even existed, which I'm super grateful for this Puritan, John Flavel. He put like the, he kind of reimagined and recreated a conversation between the father and the son that I think is really helpful for us. And so you can read it on the screen with me. So imagine this, this conversation between the two. Father says this, my son, here's a company of poor, miserable souls that have utterly undone themselves and now lie open to my justice. Justice demands satisfaction for them or will satisfy itself in the eternal ruin of them. And so what shall be done for these souls? Literally, God the Father is saying to the Son, their sin deserves punishment. If I'm going to be a just God, if I'm going to be a holy God, I cannot overlook their sin. Sin has to have a punishment that is actually paid for. And so either they're going to have to pay for it themselves or somebody's going to have to do it for them. And here's the son's reply. Oh, my father, such is my love to and pity for them that rather than they shall perish eternally, that they should be apart from God for eternity, I will be responsible for them as their guarantee. Bring all your bills that I may see what they owe you, Lord. Bring them all in that there may be no after reckonings with them. At my hand, you will require it. And upon me, my father, upon me be all their debt. And then the fathers respond, but my son, if you undertake for them, you must pay the last penny. Expect no discounts. If I spare them, I will not spare you. The son says this, I am willing, Father. Let it be so. Charge it all to me. I'm able to pay their debt, and though it will undo me, though it will impoverish all my riches and empty all my accounts, yet I am content to undertake it all. This conversation, even before light and darkness exist, before God has even spoken and divided the waters by land, before the world is filled with any living creature, before time was even brought about, the God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit had worked together and made this promise that eternal life was going to be provided. So look, you can go online and you can find people that made predictions that came hundreds of years prior to whenever the prediction happened and they actually came to be. You can go online and you can see that Robert Boyle, he predicted that organ donors were actually going to take place in the 1660s. 
You can go and look and find that Jules Verne imagined that man would land on the moon in 1865. You can go online and find that Edward Bellamy envisioned that the credit card would come into existence in 1888. You can go and find that Nikola Tesla predicted that the cell phone would happen in 1909. You can find periods and people at certain points in time that can look into the future and see what's about to happen. But here's the reality. None of them can actually bring it to fruition. These people can see what's coming up along the horizon, but they don't have the technology. They don't have the means to actually bring it about in their lifetime. It always has has to happen in the future. But look, not so with our God. What the Bible tells us is that he promised eternal life to us before time even began. And what he did is not did he just look and make a prediction, but he's actually the one that brought it to fruition. That the Godhead was so overflowing and abundant love for you and me that he looked into this world that he was about to create and he says, I'm going to create eternal life for these creatures that we are so overflowing in the fellowship that we have, the love that we have for one another, that we're going to create other people. They're going to fall. They're going to be in ruin, but I'm going to step in. I'm going to redeem these people and then we're going to come and make our home inside of them and we're going to live with them for all eternity before time even began. So look, who's ever loved you close to what God has done? Where where else can you turn? There's no relationship that you can find in this world that's ever gonna scratch the surface for the love that God has shown to you in Christ Jesus. There's no other place, there's no other thing, there's no other religion that can even scratch the surface for what God has done for you because he promised you eternal life before the world was even created. And this is the household message of the church, the gospel of Jesus Christ. So here's our response. We never move beyond it. As the church of God, this isn't just the entry point into life within the family. It's the thing that we practice every single week. So look, the part that you play in never moving beyond the gospel is that we work together to remember the gospel as the church. Every single week, the work of the church is to remind one another of the goodness of this gospel, that the love that God has shown us even before time began, that he provides us with eternal life is the thing that we work to remember as a gathered church. So one of the primary places we do that, obviously, is here on Sunday nights. Like we gather together as the church. And what we do is we have some things that are part of our service that we call liturgy. Liturgy literally means work of the people. And so we put a lot of thought and intentionality into our services because we want to rehearse the gospel every single week that we gather together. We have different movements. So if you've been coming for a while, you recognize that we have a call to worship. God is the one that instigated relationship with us. And so we always remind each other with a word that God is the one that's inviting us in to worship together. We have a time of confession, a song that reminds us of our sinfulness and our need for a savior. But we don't stop there. We move to to assurance where we have this hope that God has stepped into our mess 
through Jesus and he's provided healing and forgiveness of sin through the work of Christ here in this world. But not only do we get peace with God, we also get peace with one another. And so we do a passing of the peace that we get to go talk with one another, catch up with one another and share in the goodness of what Jesus has done for us. We move into giving as I just stated that we work through giving because God has turned heaven inside out and giving Jesus to us. And so we're reminded of the abundance of God. And so we into worship Jesus with all the resources that God has given us that we move into a time of sitting under the word. Hopefully we hear the gospel every single time that we gather together as a church, amen. Then we work through communion, which is a reminder that we have fellowship with God because of what Jesus has done for us. And then we end with a benediction. God always brings us in in order to send us out. And so we leave with a blessing so that we can go out and be reminded that we have a watching world that looks at us, sees hopefully the hope of Christ inside of us, and we have the opportunity to share that good news with them as well. So look, if we have this place that we have these rhythms for us to be reminded of the gospel every single week, here's what it looks like for you to step in. That you come ready. When we gather as a church, it looks like that you come ready Two things. You come ready to serve, because we're a church plant and it's all hands on deck, amen. But secondly, that you come ready to engage. So here's the reality. As you step into the life of our service, there's a lot of you that are going to be up here, or there's going to be some of you that are up in our kids' rooms. Others of you are going to be serving on a Sunday night, hospitality, welcoming people in here. There's going to be different roles that you play on a week-to-week basis, and we come in, and here's the question that you should be thinking through. How am I reminding others of the gospel? As I stand before them and I'm taking leadership roles or service roles in the life of the church, how am I coming ready to remind God's people of the goodness of the gospel. And if by chance that you're not serving in a particular place when you come in here on a Sunday, the second is that you come ready to engage. Here's the reality. Look, here's the reality. We all are coming from different places and spaces in our week where some of us, we have really high highs and we come in, we're ready and we're joyful and we want to sing with all that we have. Some of us are coming in from a broken, hard week and we just are kind of barely surviving. Here's the reality. Every single person that's in this room needs to see you sing. We think very intentionally about the words that we're putting up on the screen as we, as we sing as God's people. There's a lot of weightiness that comes to putting words on another person's lips. Here's the, but here's the thing. like We can come in and we can sing and it can be very rote. It can be very cold. And the things that we may be singing that we say that we believe don't really look like we believe them internally because of the way that we sing them out. And if somebody's coming in here and it's broken, it's a broken week, they're kind of hanging on by a thread. When we come and we gather in here, one of the things that may produce life inside of them, may keep them going, is that they see a church 
a people that are gathered to remember the goodness of the gospel, that they see people that maybe have a cancer diagnosis but are coming in and their hands are raised because King Jesus is ultimately going to heal them, whether it's in this life or the one to come. They have an eternal hope in Jesus. They have other people that may have lost a job, but they are leaning on the community of faith that God has brought them into. And so they know that they are going to be okay because they have a people that love them. They're going to gather around them. They're going to help them carry on and move through. There are other people that they have a really hard week with their kids, but they know they have a people that they can come and speak and be honest and be truthful about. And those people are going to speak truth into their life, that they're going to lock arms with them. They, they need to see you respond. Your heart needs to be ready to come and sit under the preaching of God's word so that we can hear good news of the gospel of Jesus be refreshed and then sent out again. We never move beyond the gospel, but we actually step further into it. We come ready and prepared. We work together to remember the goodness of what Christ has done for us. It's a household message. We never move beyond it. But we labor to remember it and rehearse it every single week that we gather together as Christ church. The household message first is that the gospel, because of God's promise, he gave it to us before this world was even, before time even began. So we work and we labor to remember it together. The second reason Why the gospel is the household message of the church we find also in verse 2. So it says this, there should be italics here. And the hope of eternal life that God, who cannot lie, promised before time began. The second reason that the household message is the gospel is because of God's character. He cannot lie. And so look, the context that Paul is writing here is really important for us to understand just how astounding this statement is. So Titus is planting a church in Crete. Crete is one of the most notorious people for lying, all right? So Titus 1.12 says this, one of their very own prophets, this is speaking of the Cretans, says, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's the, that's the slogan that you want for a people, right? <laughs> You couldn't trust the word that they spoke to you because it was just constant state of distress. You had words that were spilling off through their lips that you could never know if you could truly trust them. And we honestly live in a society that doesn't feel a lot different, right? I mean, in a lot of ways, it feels like this is kind of the state of reality that we live on a day-to-day basis. So one of the statements you probably heard is that you constantly have an over-promise and an under-deliver. You know what I'm saying? This is kind of a lot of like business speak, but um, it happens all the time. When you think about every election that rolls around, you have politicians that make really big promises, but it just never seems like it actually happens. You have businesses that have slogans that they never seem to actually follow through with. I mean, don't even get me started with like contractors or internet providers or home warranties, amen? Like it just feels like it's lies that are spouted off of their lips every single time that you talk to them. This is just kind of the constant state of our reality. But look, Paul is saying that this isn't who our God is. Paul says not God will not lie, but he says God cannot lie. 
In 2 Timothy 2.13, it says, God cannot deny himself, meaning that he cannot contradict his own character. There's a way that he, is, he declares himself holy, he is perfect, and he cannot do anything that would actually counteract what he says about himself. Hebrews 16.18 says, or 6.18 says, it is impossible for God to lie. So look, here's our response to like an overpromise and an underliver is that we underpromise so that we can overdeliver, right? Well, if I just if I give like really low expectations so they don't think much of me, then I can overdeliver because they didn't really expect much from me at all, and so it looks like I'm a lot better than what I actually even came in at the promise. That's not what our God does though. Our God gives us really big promises, these beautiful promises, these promises that we cling our life to. And the reality is, is that he doesn't under-promise so that he can over-deliver. He states fact, and then he follows through. We hold on to the gospel we, it's the household message because of God's character. God gives us a promise and then it's as if he's actually gonna follow through because look, he never fails you. So what's our response? We never move beyond the gospel. We don't. God promises it. He can't contradict himself and so why would we ever move beyond it? Look, the goal of the Christian life is for us to become like Jesus, amen? Like we see who we are before Jesus, God steps into our life, and then our work now is partnering with the Holy Spirit to become more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And how does this happen? It happens through the work of the gospel. It happens through this good news that Jesus has stepped into our life, and these people that were once a people off on their own that we are fleeing for our own life, that we're trying to figure out what to do. God steps in, he invites us in, and he saves us. Here's what Ray Ortland has to say about this, that we marvel at the grace of God in our life, and this is the work of how we grow to be more like Jesus. He says this, the doctrine of grace creates a culture of grace where good things happen to bad people. That's you and me. A gracious church culture proves that Jesus is the holy one who forgives sinners the king who befriends his enemies, and the genius who counsels failures. That's the reality of the church. We never move beyond the gospel because it's through the gospel that we grow into the likeness of Jesus, that we remind ourselves of this message that we were the sinners, that we were the failures, that we were the ones that were his enemies, and then God steps in. So if the gospel ceases to be our household message, how else would we ever change? If we move beyond the gospel, what hope do we have that we'd be more like Jesus? It would be gone. And so we never move beyond the gospel. And so here's the part that we play in as we are a church that rehearses the household message of the gospel every single time. We work together to grow in the gospel, all right? So we want the gospel to seep its roots deep down into our hearts and minds. It's whenever we grasp the goodness of the gospel and there's an un it's like an unending diamond mine that we dive headfirst in. We're trying to extract the goodness out that we just never can reach the bottom of. And so we're working together to extract the goodness of the gospel, and we've created a space for us to do this in the life of our church that we call discipleship groups, right? 
So we, we get together every single week. We're trying to grow and know in our faith. We're working through a Bible reading plan so we can learn and we can bring out the goodness of the gospel in our life as we engage God's word. We pray for each other on a consistent basis. And if we want to do this, the way that it looks like for us to extract the beauty and the goodness out of our discipleship groups is that you're invested. You're invested in these groups. You're invested in these people. So look, you take personal interest in other people's growth in the gospel and not just your own. That's what I mean by saying that you're invested. That doesn't mean that I'm saying that you neglect your own personal growth, your own walk with Jesus. That's not what I'm saying. But what happens whenever we grow into maturity together is that we don't just stop with our own personal growth with Jesus, but that we actually think about others as well that we think about what's happening in their life, that we think about like our struggles and then we think about how we can speak truth and life into other people. We want to be a people that when we're thinking about spiritual growth that we don't just think about ourselves, but we actually think about others that are a part of the faith community that we call Storyline Church. And here's how you do this. You come ready to share and you come ready to care. You come ready to share. People need to hear your words. There's a way that God meets with you as you open up the scriptures and he's speaking into your life and other people need to hear what God is doing in your life because it may be that God is using you to speak truth into another person's life that they wouldn't get apart from you sharing. So you need to take your personal walk with Jesus seriously. You need to be opening up your scriptures and you need to be spending time with him and then coming ready to contribute and share whenever you meet with your discipleship group. But it also means that you need to care. That means that you take personal interest in other people's life as they gather in your discipleship group. This means that whenever somebody gives you something to pray about throughout that week, that you actually pray for them. That you take note, that you work it into your weekly schedule so that you can actually be intervening, that you can be taking this other person to Jesus so the work of Jesus would be, begin to take deeper and deeper root in their life. You share and you care. You're invested we never move beyond the gospel because of God's promise. We never move beyond the gospel because of God's character. We want to be like Jesus. And so we are personally invested. We work together to grow in the gospel so that we can see each other grow to be more like Jesus as we journey through this life together. So that's the first and the second. But we find the third in verse 3, which says this. In his own time, he has revealed his word in the preaching with which I was entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. So the third reason the gospel is a household message of the church is because of God's pattern, all right? God's pattern is that he always intervenes at the necessary time. In his own time, he has revealed his word. So there, you can see this throughout all of human history, right? So um, this is true of the past, this is true of the present, and this is also true of the future. So look, consider God's past, all right? The past, God's timing, and human history. Think about whenever Jesus entered into this world. The timing of the Father and the Son whenever Jesus came. The time in, the, like, in human history when Jesus entered in, Greece had conquered culturally, so there was a common language. 
You could actually hear the goodness of the gospel because there was a common language of a, a language that most people spoke at that day and time. You also had Rome that had conquered militarily, meaning that there was free travel. You could have roads that you could literally take all across the world in order that you could go and take the goodness of the gospel. This is what Paul steps into. This is why he was set apart for the preaching of the good news because there was a cultural language that he could step into and he could preach both to God's people, the Israelites, as well as the Greco-Romans. And there was a way that he could travel freely. And then boom, Jesus enters into the world and this is God's timing. Jesus enters in in the time where there was a a common language. There was a way that you could travel all across the globe. Jesus steps in. He lives perfectly. He dies completely. He raises victory and now you get to see the goodness of the gospel spread throughout the world. You also see it presently, all right? God's timing in your life personally. So consider the timing of God in your own life. So we all have different stories or circumstances, but we have the same testimony, amen? So you have, whether you were a moral person that thought you could actually achieve your way to God or you could see that you were so immoral that it felt like there was no possible way that you could get to God, There's a way that we are both helpless and lost without Jesus, and then boom. Through either relationships or life circumstances, God prepares your heart. You hear the goodness of Jesus. You give your life. You trust and faith in Jesus, and you have eternal life with God. The gospel enters in at just the right time as if God had been orchestrating all of your life in order for you to hear this goodness of the gospel and step in in faith, all in his perfect timing. See it in the past, you see it in your present, but you also see it in the future, God's building his church. All right, so consider the timing of our city and even our own church, all right? God has timely brought every single one of us together We believe in a God that is in control of all things, and so there's not any happenstance, right? And so look, through either relationships or life experiences, we all have landed here at a certain point in time, right? I mean, I can look across this and I can see the way that God has kind of been orchestrating things in just certain people's stories. Whether it's you came and you visited for a trip that you came to serve with our church and then God called you here. Whether it be that God had given you a different job assignment and you moved to St. Louis. You came here for school and somehow like God orchestrated for you to end up here. There was discontentment at a previous ministry place and God brought you here. There's different stories, but there's always this intervention of God in the gospel where he brings the people together, he collects them together, gathering around the gospel of Jesus. But it's also, consider the time of our city, all right? So you have the time of our city. St. Louis has largely been overlooked when it comes to churches being planted for decades. I mean, there's a like from my count, about five new churches that have been started in St. Louis within about a 10 to 15 year time frame. That's drastically small. You have two city colleges that have been largely unreached by any of the churches that are here in the city. And then you have pastors who've been praying for a new church in the area that we're in for almost a whole entire decade. You have all of this You have the timing of how God has brought us together as a people. You have the timing of what's happening in the city. And then boom, a collection of if we all are gathered together on a particular Sunday, 70 people when we're all present. 
This is God's pattern. <laughs> God intervenes in a timely manner in the past, the present, and the future. And so look, God's pattern is to timely intervene with the gospel. It's no different for us now than it has been in the past or in our present whenever we consider our own stories. And so here's our application. Look, we never move beyond the gospel. We never move beyond this gospel. Not only do we work together to remember the gospel or to grow in the gospel, we also work to share the gospel with others. All right, so there's this pastor, Jonathan Dotson. He's down in Austin, Texas. He knows that the church is God's even, I can't say this word, evangelistic, evangelistic. Is that a word? I don't know. Maybe I just made it up. It's God's evangelistic genius. All right, so people rarely come to faith through a single gospel witness. There's a, he looks at this professor of evangelism that notes that less than 30% actually come to faith because of a single witness encounter. But rather, most conversions are the result of a process that occurs over time and involves a variety of different gospel testimonies and experiences, meaning that there's a church that's involved. There's not just one single person, not just one single testimony, not one single missionary, but it's usually a collection of a people in a church that through the consistent witness of that church that a person gives their life and faith to Jesus. And so look, here's what this looks like for us, for us to be a people that work together to share the goodness of the gospel with others is that we are a people that are inviting we're a people that are inviting. Let's make it our regular practice to invite people in because there's not a constant, repeated effort of one single person, but a collection of people that are sharing the goodness of the gospel with others. A community that works to remember the gospel and grow in the gospel together, it's like this tube of toothpaste, right? So if you get a group of people and you squeeze it together that have been working to remember the gospel and working to grow in the gospel, what's going to come out? The gospel. And so we want to get people into this community so that whenever our life is rubbed off on them and when we talk about life and we work through the things that are, make us passionate, we talk about the updates that are coming on in our life and we just talk about the things that are happening, the gospel comes out and we have organic conversations with people about the gospel and there's a consistent testimony that happens that people hear the good news of Jesus, they see the good news of Jesus inside of you and what seems to be the consistent pattern is that people come to faith because a consistent, persistent, constant witness of the church in the life of God's people. We never move beyond the gospel because it's God's pattern that he divinely intervenes with the gospel to save other people through his church. So look, there's... There is a consistent like pattern of like oftentimes wreckage where it paves there's it paves a way for new opportunities. So you can look at the church and it's like, man, what's gonna be good that comes out as a result of a lot of the junk that's happened in the last three to five years? But look, oftentimes what takes place after wreckage is beauty. That's why we use phrases like from beauty to ashes, right? There's something about when God tears something down, he begins to create something new and he can create something beautiful. And I, look, 
That's what happened at that May 3rd tornado. If you go and you read articles about what has resulted after that tornado, you read about communities that it was destroyed, that it was destructed, but they're now flourishing because something new and beautiful has happened in its place. And the same is going to be true for God's church. You know why? Because God's promise resides with this church that the gates of hell will never prevail against the church. You know why? Because it's the place, the household message is the gospel. We never move beyond it because God never moves beyond the gospel either. And so he does a good work in, through the life of the church in order to see the goodness of the gospel taken out into the watching world. And look, I think we're going to be able to be a small part of it, all right? We're not the answer to it, but we get to be a part of it. All right, And so how does that happen? As God builds this household of faith, we never move beyond the gospel. We work to remember it. We work together to grow in it. And we work together to share it. And look, with the help of the Holy Spirit, he's going to continue to build us up. And we're going to see the beauty from the ashes that has taken place in the life of our city. I want to be a part of that. Do you? Well, God's, by the help of God's Spirit, I believe we will. Let's pray.